If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 5. And I want to encourage you to have a Bible out and open. It's good to follow along. We are in the part six of a seven-part series where because we have a number of newer people that I wanted to take this first seven weeks of the fall to is make plain who we are as a church. And to do so by looking at, first, how we love God and worship. We did that in the first couple sermons. And then how we at Pine Grove try to love each other. That was parts three, four, and five. And now we're going to look at how we love the world. So we went from our love to God upward, our care and concern for each other, almost like inward, and now outward. And so these two parts are about evangelism. This is going to be more about just living our lives. Next week it will be more about our words and proclaiming the gospel. One of the delights I had this week of looking at these verses is it came, the thought came to me that um, God is very kind to us in his word that he uses very simple, readily understandable illustrations. I know sometimes... Well, even Peter writes in Second Peter of Paul writing some things that are hard to understand. But mainly, the Bible is readily understandable. God put it in our language. He planted an apple tree and trimmed the branches so that the fruit is all near the ground for those of you who are short. And here he's talking about salt and light. Because that was a common, very useful, important realities in our words. So I just wanted to say it because that was very encouraging to me. And I want it to be encouraging to you that God's word is accessible to you. And he's made it that way. Why has he made it that way? Why did he do it like that? Why didn't he make it so that you could only read it in Greek and Hebrew? But he gave it to you in English. Why did he preserve it for you? Why did he fill it with words that are easily understood to you? Why? He wants you to read it. He wants you to understand it. And so, read it. It's really good. Okay, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 20, but the sermon will be mainly 13 to 16. I want you to see the context. So, uh, Matthew 5, 1 to 20. Seeing the crowds, he, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But as salt has lost its taste, 
how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us now to have understanding of your word. Teach us to long for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with us now according to your loving kindness. Teach us your statutes. We are your slaves. We are yours. Give us understanding. Please act on our behalf, O God. Help us to love your commandments above gold. Esteem them and hate every false way. Amen. In chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, we see Jesus had begun his public ministry and he's gathering great crowds. And in verse 25, these great crowds are following him. And now he ascends a mountain. This is significant. Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. He's actually the son of God, but he's going to give God's people his word. He's their covenant Lord, and he's on the mountain. The Lord is on his throne. The crowds are gathering to hear him. But you'll note specifically that when he sits down, a small group come to him. His disciples came to him. Now just before this, he had called his disciples, and now they come to him, gather very near him to receive their Lord's words. And his words begin with blessing. How to get And receive happiness from God. Isn't that wonderful? Here's my blessing for you. And you're going to have to be different than the world. And it will cause you suffering. But if you want my Father's smile. If you want His happiness. If you want Him to bestow His happiness on you. His blessing on you. Here's how. So we have these Beatitudes. And then, I'm going to keep you in the world. And if you're going to have the Father's blessing on you, it's going to lead to suffering. And so who are you to be in this world? What's your purpose in this world? That is, he wants you, we, his disciples, as we suffer for his name in this world, to not lose hope. You have significance in this world. You're salt, you're light. You have great purpose in this world. That's our verses. And then he further defines that by his word. He hasn't come to abolish the word. He's the new Moses on the mountain, but he's not changing it. He's fulfilling it. He's bringing the, the true, deepest sense of it forward. None of it's going to go away. So don't relax my word. Not one bit of it. 
So there's three parts to the beginning of the sermon, and the rest of the sermon is just filling in with lots of examples these first three parts. And our part comes right in the middle of it. Our part is, you're going to live in this world in a certain way, and blessed, the greatest blessing, are those who suffer for my name's sake. And that's going to be very discouraging, very hard. Is it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. I have you in this world for this purpose. You're salt and light here. You're vital to this world, but the temptation in your suffering is going to be to soften my word, to relax it. Don't do it. Stand firm in it. Now, what I want to do with that is, let me, let me start with this. Where's the grace in this word? Here's the king on his mountain, his disciples. Hopefully you and I are drawing near to him to hear his word. And it just seems like law. It's just law. Don't be proud, be poor in spirit. Don't go around lightly in this world, mourn. Don't hunger and thirst to fulfill your lust. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Be pure of heart. Be salt, be light. Don't relax my law. Where's the grace? I want to ask that because we have this term legalism. Legalism. It's like the worst thing in the world. But we have no idea what legalism is actually. We just use it at anybody who tells us what God tells us to do. Is Jesus a legalist? Because he's telling you what to do. No, of course not. So, is God's law gracious? Yeah, it's absolutely gracious. Legalism isn't God telling us his law. You know that? Legalism is trying to attain God's righteousness by how you keep his law. Even more so sometimes legalism is you making up your own laws and elevating them above God's laws and then demanding everybody else does too. Jesus is not being a legalist here. He's being very gracious. So let me just explain to you a few explicit ways that you see the grace of God as the king is giving his subjects his rules. Well, the king is the one who's going to die to pay for your law-breaking. And he's going to give you his record of law-keeping. The one who is doing the teaching is the one who is, about, is going to do the dying. Isn't that grace? So as this king is giving his subjects, his slaves, his law, he's doing so as the promised one to come down and pay for all of their law-breaking, to reconcile them to the Father. Isn't that grace? Can you listen to somebody like that? Second, throughout this sermon, he repeatedly refers to God as Father. The first place we see it is in 5.16, right in our text. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And in chapter 6, he uses it 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 times that I found. Over and over and over again, he's calling us to love our Father in heaven and obey him. 
What does that word father mean to you? Why is that word there? What, what is he trying to communicate to you about your relationship with him? Adoption. Adoption. The truth that our relationship to him is as a father who came to a pitiful, weak, fatherless, motherless child all alone and brought you home by grace. Because of Christ, of course, we're adopted in Christ, the true son, the eternal son. We're in him, and so we get father. But this is gracious word from an adoptive father. Hey, son, I know you're new here in this family, but here's how Vandergallians act. Here's the Vandergallian way. Here's the way to be my children. My children love righteousness. My children love my word. My adopted sons and daughters love me. I'm speaking as God the Father now, not Jeremy Vandergallian. This is a word of grace to his adoptive children. Right? So be careful not to think legalism is loving God's law. Legalism is trying to think you can get God to adopt you because you've been such a good little boy or girl in the orphanage. Or it's actually making up your own rules and then demanding everybody else follow them because you're a better lawgiver than he is. Love is keeping God's word. So this is full of grace. Now I want to focus on the grace in verses 13 to 16 where Jesus comes and defines for his disciples who they are in this world. He's defining. Because he knows if they're going to follow him, if they're going to be disciples who love his word, that he's going to teach them and live according to their king's words, that it's going to cause them suffering. Verses 10, 11, and 12. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to utter all kinds of false evil against you. That's going to be very discouraging and very difficult. You know this, right? At work, when everybody's yipping about the boss or talking about what they did on the weekend, their debauched life, and you're not, You're going to be kept on the outside. There's going to be pressure for you to be one on the inside. And so you have great meaning in this world. Jesus prayed in John 17, don't take them out of the world. So who are we in this world? This goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, to Israel. What are we here for? We're to take dominion over this earth. We're in this world with great purpose and meaning. Israel was put in Canaan to be those who are distinct from the rest of the nations around them. So is the church. Now Jesus uses this illustration of salt and light. Salt and light. Pliny, as a guy alive during Jesus' time, said, Without salt, life can't be sustained. He went on to say that nothing is as important and useful as salt and light. So, um, I read a book a few years ago, East of Eden. 
delightful. And uh, I can't remember the main character's name, but he got the idea of when they grew vegetables or or fruit in California that they could refrigerate uh, train boxes and ship the produce east so that they could have vegetables and fruits in December. And so salt in the ancient world is like refrigeration is in our day. Do you know that you can go to the store and buy a watermelon in January or buy a plum that was grown in Argentina? Why? Refrigeration. Salt was, is like that. It, it, in that day, it was very, very important and expensive. It, workers were often paid in salt. Salt was something offered to the gods. Salt, of course, preserved all of the meat so it didn't spoil. And then, of course, salt makes things taste very, very good. So salt is vital. Same thing with light. I don't think you need me to show you the importance of light. It's wonderful to walk into a house and flip a switch and the lights come on. It's really a miracle. It's wonderful. It's every day. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, to his church, you are as essential as two of the most essential things to life in the world, salt and light, in the world. And you need to keep this in mind, particularly as you listen to my words, learn from me, do what I say, because it's going to cause you to suffer. You have great purpose and great meaning in the world. And so Pine Grove Community Church has this purpose and meaning in this world. Now, I don't mean that to say that no other churches are important as Pine Grove, but I'm not talking to any other churches. I'm talking to you, and you really, really matter here. Do you know that? Do you know what our community would be like without the church? You are as salt. You are as important as light. And so I want you to keep this in mind, the importance that your Lord attaches to you and to us here in Rhinelander. We're very important. Now, what does it mean to be salt and light? Well, here in salt, Jesus says, taste. He refers to salt as giving things taste. So salt makes things taste good. So the world, without Christians, without Jesus' disciples, without the church, would be bland. Wouldn't be much taste, flavorless, drab. How so? How does the church bring flavor? But do you notice that one of the things that the world demands is that everybody think and speak and act alike? It's rather boring. In school, right? In the world. There's no room to be different. Everybody's got to be the same. It's very boring. Predictable. And the church are those who give themselves the God's word and so are different. We should be the distinct ones. How did all this come to be? Well, God spoke it. It's pretty salty, isn't it? Right? 
And then salt not only flavors things, it keeps them from decay. And our world is prone to decay, isn't it? The church preserves truth. The church stands on God's word and so preserves it. And then light, light enlightens. Light brings truth to bear. Christ is the light of the world and that light is now the church, his people, you, me, us. All right, so why is he saying this to us? Why is he taking the time to do this? Let me just illustrate with marriage. I've used these before, but I want to do it. Does the world have any idea the purpose of marriage, the purposes of marriage? Now, the world doesn't believe that God created marriage and gave it with purpose, so that's one failure. But the church are supposed to be those who continues to say to the world, no, 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 God made marriage and he gave it for three distinct purposes that we see in the Bible. Do we know what those purposes are? Why does marriage matter? Another way to say it is God didn't just give you marriage and then just say, go at it, do what you want. He gave you marriage and said, here's three great purposes. I need you to live in light of my purposes of marriage. Do you know what those are? What are the Three biblical purposes from our Creator for marriage. Anybody? Okay, so it is an analogy of Christ and the church to become what so you have companionship. That's a great purpose of marriage. It's delightful. Procreation. Children are a blessing, a reward. You're supposed to get married and have children. Away with all of the keeping yourselves from having children. It's good. What's the third purpose? I heard purity, I think. Purity. Right, because we are sexual beings with sexual bodies. And God has given you a place for that. Marriage. Imagine how good the world would be if we lived in light of those purposes of marriage. Right? How tasty the world would be how preserved it would be. Wouldn't that be good? Another way to say it is, how, how, how many of you came from homes that didn't honor the purposes of marriage? And how hard has that made life? Okay? So the church, Christians, disciples are those put in the world to keep these things in the world, to preserve, to give taste, to give light. In all areas of life, not just marriage. And so Christians are no longer salty when they say, I'm getting married, but I'm doing what I want. Well, that's what the world does. You're tasteless. You're no longer light. We're supposed to be different in our marriages and in many other areas of our life, right? This is our use, our goodness in the world. And so Jesus is coming to his disciples saying, I picked you. I am the one who's bringing you to the Father. I'm going to die and rise and redeem you. And I'm going to leave and I'm going to keep you here. And I have very important, specific purpose for you in this world. But Jesus knows the temptation you and I will face 
to not want to live in light of his word because of the pressure of the world. We are very afraid of being different. Very afraid. Do you feel that? How fearful it is to stand out. Light stands out. Salt makes things tasty. If it gets into a sore, it stings. And Jesus knows that the world will pressure us, particularly whatever it decides in that age that it hates about God's word. It's going to pressure the church. And God made us for a relationship and sinfully will be inclined to compromise, to give in to the world. That is, we will be so deranged in sin that we would much rather be approved by people who have no ability to take you to hell and be disapproved at the God who created you. That's how warped we are in our thinking. You'll do it in your marriage. You'll do it with your children. You'll do it at work. And so Jesus is making sure that this threat to our souls, he is telling us how bad it'll be. So it's the danger of hypocrisy. Right? The danger of hypocrisy. What is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? Right, yeah. You portray yourself as one thing when you're actually another. You remember when we were going through the book of Acts? And he had this really sweet note at the end of Acts chapter 5. And uh, was it Barnabas who sold everything and gave it? Yeah. And then you have in the opening, everything's going well for the church. I mean, there's a little persecution in the world, but they're enjoying it. They're celebrating. They're getting together in the temple and at their homes, sharing everything. It's like a delight. Everything's going great to the point of when there's need, somebody's got a field, they sell the field to meet the need. It's really sweet. And then remember Acts 6. The devil always wants to take what the church is doing and try to twist it and destroy it. Ananias and Sapphira. See... What Barnabas did and the accolades Barnabas got, and they sell some stuff, keep some of the proceeds, give the rest, and then lie about it. It's really a twisted thing. They, they weren't under any obligation to sell and give any of it. They weren't under any obligation to give all of it. They could have given part and said, hey, here's 50%, we're keeping 50 But they lied about it. They portrayed themselves as one thing when they were actually another. Why? They wanted the illusion of being one thing when they were actually very different. That's a hypocrite. That's the temptation Jesus is getting at in verses 13 to 16. We're in the world. Christ wants us in the world. The meat of the world is bland and prone to decay. We're supposed to be salt to give it taste, to keep it from decay. The world is in darkness. We're supposed to be the light of Christ in the world. But the temptation we'll face is just to be just like the world, but still go to church and look like good Christians. To talk one way here among believers on Sunday and then at Monday at work talk a totally different way. Kids, you, you act one way here at church. You talk one way here at church. And then when you're with your friends at school, you're dropping F-bombs left and right. Why? 
Because you want to be accepted. You got to be in with the cool kids. You hate being rejected. I can't stand it. So we're just bland like the world. We're just decay like the world. We're just dark like the world. But we want the church to think we're salt and light. And so Jesus is getting ahead of that. Now, there is solution for meat that's prone to decay, right? What's the solution for meat that could decay? Salt. Or a refrigerator in our day. What's the solution for salt that's no longer salty? What do you do? What do you do about salt that isn't salty anymore? You throw it out. So will we or won't we? Now what's odd here is Jesus is saying that salt that lost its saltiness isn't salt. That light that's hidden isn't light. That a Christian that isn't a Christian isn't a Christian. A Christian that looks like the world, compromises the world, loves the world, doesn't fear God, is just not a Christian. It's not salt. It's just not light. He's defining us. We are this. We're to live in light of who we are. And so the, the, the question is, will we have faith to trust in God and his promises of eternity, or won't we? Will we love God and so experience trouble for loving him, or do we love the world and want to keep ourselves safe and secure in this world? If we dare to follow Christ, we have real purpose and meaning. And this purpose and meaning is supposed to sustain us in suffering. That's why Pine Grove Community Church matters here. We have to tell the truth. We have to live the truth. We are to be distinct. And not distinct in a way that says, hey, look how distinct I am. But somebody who loves God enough to be distinct for his glory. We'll get to that in a moment. And so this is one of the things that the church has always wrestled with. We're constantly wanting to be like the world. Constantly. And the place where you can see that most easily is whatever the gods of our day, the lords of our day, are exalting above it all. So, so what, where are the places where the world is demanding the church acquiesce? The church forget its truth. The church soften. The church relax God's commandments. Where are those places? Yeah, gender, right. Yeah. And, and you still think it's Okay. To be not a man when you're a man or not a woman when you're a woman and to women to dress like men and men to dress like women. and You feel the pressure there. Where else? Marriage, right. Yeah. Abortion, yeah. So there is a billboard, electronic one, if you're heading north on 17, past the ice arena, before the Y, on um, whether it be the east side of the road. Have you seen it? Trust, what does it say? Trust who? Trust pregnant people. I don't even have the dignity to say pregnant women. And what does it say? Then it lists four things. Abortion, birth, adoption, miscarriage. 
You remember those, when you took a test in school, sometimes the test would be, which one of these four doesn't fit with the others? Remember that test? You had to look at them and figure out what categories or how they related to each other, and there's one that didn't fit. Which one of those doesn't fit? Abortion. This is something our world refuses. Why doesn't it fit? Because birth is the God-given natural part of being pregnant. Adoption is a God-given reality in a sinful, fallen world when children won't have parents. Miscarriage is a grief, a sorrow, a loss. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Abortion is murder. Which one of those doesn't fit? And you're supposed to be different there. You're supposed to talk about that in this world. And I'm not saying there isn't forgiveness for abortion or for contributing to abortion. There is. But we're supposed to be different there. So let me do this. What I want to do is, we get, we get what this is saying, right? You're tracking with me? Feeling good about yourself? No, me neither after looking at this text. But what I want to do is, I want to keep this really simple and practical. Because how Jesus means us to be salt and light on the earth aren't like these Mount Everest kind of feats that very few Christians will ever be able to accomplish and the rest of us are just going to have to wallow in our terrible failure before Jesus. He, he just, he's going to give you everyday things. So what, I wanted, what I did is I just, through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, I looked at the kinds of things Jesus was talking about and I want to apply them specifically to us. Now I want to answer, okay, how do I do this? I see my Lord's call. I want to live as he's defining me. What does it look like? Well, one of the main parts of the Sermon on the Mount is prayer. The Lord's Prayer is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Other teachings on how to pray, how not to pray, anxiety. Prayer is a big part. And so I would assume our Lord intends us to know that being salt and light in this world is through prayer. How does prayer bring taste and preservation and light to the world? Well, who else can pray and be heard by God the Father in heaven? Only the church, right? Can atheists? Can Muslims? Can feminists? Only Christians, only his disciples. In 1 Timothy 2, we're exhorted, men are exhorted to pray for those in civil authority. That God would so work in them that the church could have peace. Prayer is a preservative. Prayer is we alone can come boldly before his throne because we're his adopted children in 14, 16. So the only failure in prayer is just not to pray. Pray in all things. So you all have things going on in your lives as believers that trouble you, maybe at work, maybe in your parenting. Give yourselves the prayer. Give yourselves the gathering with other Christians and praying. Now, one of the failures in prayer is that we think that we have to use a bunch of big words and long prayers. We think that God hears us because of the beautiful tapestry we weave in our prayers. And 
Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, don't heap up phrases. Think that you'll be heard for your many words. Just keep them simple. Very, very simple. So prayer is one. Another aspect of the Lord's Sermon is worship. Sabbath. Isn't that a way that Christians are going to be very different than the world? We set the Lord's Day, Sunday, apart. We're different on Sunday than the rest of the world. They're out mowing their lawns. We're not. Right? 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 They got to get a whole bunch done on Sunday. We don't, right? Right? The room that needs painting that you didn't get on on Saturday, you don't do it on Sunday, right? Why don't Christians do it on Sunday? Because the Lord set it apart from creation as a holy day to him. You work on six, you rest and worship on the seventh, right? Now, I mean that as an encouragement. Of course, I want to convict you over your giving yourselves to work. Students, don't study on Sunday. Get it done on Saturday. Quit being lazy on Saturday. But I want to encourage you. Here you are on Sunday. Right? As you're doing this. I know you pray. You, you honor the Sabbath. We can do it better. We should do it better. Why? Because that's what it means to be salt and light. So we pray. We worship. We've already mentioned marriage. We marry. I'm very, I mean, I think it's a delight how many of you young folks are marrying or are going to get married, or older folks. I was thinking about you two right there. Right. It's a good thing. In a world where now people are waiting well into their 30s to get married, Christians are marrying. It takes faith to marry in this world, doesn't it? Oh, my goodness. And to have children. It's a delight. This is salt and light. I mean, another way to say it is, like, salt and light doesn't mean you got to sell everything and go be a missionary in Nepal. Salt and light means you get to marry and have kids in our world. It's a lot easier today. It's just different. And, and have a bunch of them. Now, this, when I say things like that, almost always you start thinking, well, how many is make me a good Christian? How about more than you think? One more than when you want to say no. Can I, can I do that? Or how about you adopt children? How about you adopt um, fetuses who are frozen in some bank somewhere and have them implanted in your wife and raise them as your own? You know, this is what Christians have done from the beginning. Roman children were property of their parents, and if their fathers didn't want them, they would throw them on the hillside and leave them to the animals. You know what Christians did? They walked up there and took them, and raised, took them home and raised them. It was salt and light in the Roman world. Only Christians did that. One of the other aspects that Jesus gets at is our anger in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and murderers will be liable to judgment, 521. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Christians are different in this world in that we don't deal with anger the same way the world does. We discipline our anger. We say no to it where it's inappropriate and selfish. We confess it when we're wrong to another. How many of you have ever had a supervisor at work get angry at you? Anybody had that? How many of you have ever heard your supervisor come and apologize and ask for forgiveness for your anger, for his or her anger? Ever have that happen? 
How about if you're a Christian supervisor and you're unrighteously angry, even just irritated, you come back later after cooling down and saying, hey, I was wrong. Wouldn't that be salty? Parents, hopefully do this with your kids. We deal with anger differently. The world justifies its anger, doesn't it? I had a right to be angry. If you hadn't blah, 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 if you hadn't blah, 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 right? Christians say no to their anger where it's unrighteous. And though we get angry at things that God gets angry at. How about just taking responsibility? Our world is filled with victims blaming others. What if we just owned our failures at our anger, at our lust, and got better? So, so you see, it's very practical. These are things we're already doing. You don't have to attempt some superhuman feat to be salt and light. You just pray and have a few kids, do your best with them, go to church, worship God. Try to refrain from unrighteous, selfish anger. Apologize when you mess it up. And then just keep doing that until Christ comes and welcomes you home. That's our life here, isn't it? Now, Jesus ends our section here by letting your light shine, verse 16, before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These little everyday things that I said are connected in your lives with you actually giving the Father in heaven glory. How can you glorify him? How? I mean, but I'm just thinking, God is infinitely beyond and superior to us. And somehow you can live in these little ways and it brings him magnification, praise, you, by praying. Bring him glory. You by confessing your unrighteous anger and getting help and learning how to not to do it anymore. Bring him honor the king glory i got to glorify the king today you little peasant living in some little village in some little state live in such a simple way and that glorifies your king isn't that wonderful that's why we're here nobody else gets this privilege just you just me nobody you and i alone along with our brothers and sisters in the world Get to do this. We have the privilege and honor of giving our Father glory. Right? This is who we are. And so this is what we want Pine Grove to continue to grow to be. Different. But don't forget, you're not doing it wrong if you're catching flack for it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in this coming June, when your work demands that you wear the flag, right? Or they demand that every email you sent list the pronouns you prefer. 
would that cause you suffering if you didn't go along with it? Could. Or when your girlfriends are talking very negatively about another friend who isn't present, and you walk away. Or when the guys are talking nasty about a girl, and you tell them to shut up. It's gross. Real men don't do that. We'll suffer, won't we? Jesus said we would. But we matter here, so let's keep doing it. Let's pray. Father, uh, rewire our brains, please, to do this counterintuitive, paradoxical things that we would see it as blessings if we're reviled and persecuted and lied about because we're just trying to do things like praying and upholding the goodness of marriage and the purposes of marriage and having children and asking forgiveness for our anger and all of these things. And so God, help us to have the faith to see these as good things, good gifts from you, blessings, rewards, and that we might live as salt and light because they garner your blessing and they bring you glory. And so God, please connect those in us. Rewire our synapses. Transform our hearts to see living distinctly, living as salt and light as a a real blessing. God, for those who are really struggling there, who do live very different in the world than they do in the church, would you make them very uncomfortable, turn them from that folly, help them to see the the foolishness of loving the world more than you. And those of us who do it in many little different ways, just constantly tempted to compromise, help us, oh God. Help us to get a bit better in the coming week. And may we desire it for your glory, because this matters. You've defined us at it, so God, give us faith for this. In Jesus' name, amen.